Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about rambling on the open highway. This was inspired by our first pug nugget, the first cross-country road trip. We note the passing of Marsha Hunt, a veteran actress and activist who lived to 104. We take a look at the so-called takeaway Rembrandt. We get a little salty with the Morton Salt Girl, and we find that great ideas often occur in the shower. The Old Dog's conversation is with Bob Dauber, whose career as a production guy included Montgomery Ward and Barney. Stay with us. Well, Paul, mm-hmm. I wonder what is on that wandering mind of yours today. Well, there's a part of me that wants you to keep wandering to see where you go. Uh, but I'm going to stop this by saying we had a pod nugget today that talked about the first cross-country road trip. Yes, we did. It took over two months, and that started me thinking, you know, that's something that changes as you age. Um, What's that? It's Well, short trips seem to take two months <laughs> when when I get into the car it's okay. my endurance my endurance has shortened when I was younger oh I could get in the car and drive for 12 hours and it wouldn't bother me yeah but um, th- these days when uh, my wife and I plan a trip we pretty much have an agreement that we will stop at least every two hours hmm. get out of the car walk around scream and then get back in hmm. And uh, I'm I'm just wondering if that's something that you share, too, when you get in a car. Well, uh, I don't know if there's screaming involved that much. Uh, but, you know, it's been so long since we took a road trip. Uh, pretty much, I think, last year was the last one we took. Uh, that was a, a nine-hour trip. And we did not stop every two hours, but we did stop for meals And, you know, you don't get any relief from stopping at attractions. I was never one to stop at the world's biggest teepee or whatever might be roadside. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you one thing I do miss and really miss profoundly is the Burma Shave signs. Uh, And I think everybody listening is probably familiar with all of those terrific signs that used to dot the American roads back in the 40s and 50s in particular. Uh, and then they mm-hmm. gradually disappeared. I suspect a lot of people learned to read yeah. uh, with rumor shaped signs. Those short, punchy sentences. Oh, they were hilarious. Well, I, I gotta say, I I'm not a big fan of billboards. I would much rather enjoy the surroundings, the changing landscape. That's always been interesting for me driving in a car. Mm-hmm. You don't get that feeling on a plane. No. Um, Well, uh, there is one option that uh, my wife and I are considering very seriously, and that is to either rent or buy an RV, uh, not a big one, uh, and take off and start visiting friends of ours that we haven't seen in a while. And I wouldn't mind doing that for an extended period of time, frankly. But I think that we would still do it in hops, like you're suggesting. I can imagine it would be something that would be fun. It would be an adventure. But at some point, you know, you get tired of elbows in your eye or whatever happens in close quarters yeah well it's, that's why i'm thinking maybe renting is the way to go there's certainly plenty of, uh, of rvs that are available for rent 
Absolutely, and and the cheapest option is steal one. Well, yeah, because they would people that owned it probably would be relieved. <laughs> you know, honey, the RV's been stolen. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> The first cross-country road trip took over two months on bad roads without a Stuckey's or a snake farm to break the monotony. This item is from the Interesting Facts website. On May 23, 1903, Horatio Nelson Jackson started driving east from San Francisco in the first U.S. cross-country road trip. Like a lot of regrettable life choices, it started as a bet, a $50 wager that it couldn't be done in less than 90 days. Jackson's companion on the trip was a mechanic named Sewell Crocker, a wise choice considering the dependability of automobiles 120 years ago. His Winton touring car was often challenged by the state of the rough gravel roads in the West. They were lucky to make 70 miles in a day. Once they reached Nebraska, the roads improved and they could cover 250 miles in a day. They finally arrived in New York City after 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes, winning the $50 bet. It was a success story until you start adding up the expense of meals and lodging for two people for 63 days. But what the heck, he won the bet. Actress Marsha Hunt died at the age of 104 recently. She had a busy film career until it was ended when she was unfairly identified as a communist sympathizer in the 50s. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for September 10th, 2022. If you're a fan of Turner classic movies, you're familiar with the work of Marsha Hunt. While not a major star, she played solid supporting roles in dozens of MGM pictures. And that was fine with Miss Hunt. As she described it, I didn't care about being the lead, fame, or anything like that. I didn't want to be a star. I wanted to be the best possible actress I could become, and they were letting me grow with every role. In 1947, she joined the Committee for the First Amendment, a group of two dozen notables in the entertainment industry. They were protesting the persecution of the Hollywood Ten, a group of liberal writers, by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Unfortunately, the Committee for the First Amendment was ineffective, and they were soon branded a Communist Front organization. Several members recanted their involvement in order to save their careers. Many others, like Marsha Hunt, were blacklisted and their careers ended. Miss Hunt worked sporadically as an actress after the blacklist ended, but the momentum to her screen career was lost. Later in life, she turned her attention from acting to social activism. Among her many causes, she was an impassioned voice on food insecurity, poverty, and homelessness. Perhaps that was the starring role she never sought. Art thefts always make headlines, but you run out of things to say when the art in question has been stolen four times. This pod nugget is from the worldhistoryproject.org. The painting is the portrait of Jacob de Gain III by Rembrandt. It has been stolen four times since 1966, a record for a painting. As a result, the portrait is now called the Takeaway Rembrandt. The work measures 11.8 by 9.8 inches, which is small for a Rembrandt. Something that size would be easy to conceal. It would fit in a medium-sized pizza box. 
Now, this could be one of the reasons why it was stolen so often. Over the years, it has been recovered from a taxi, the luggage rack on a train, the back of a bicycle, and under a bench in a graveyard. And each time, it was returned to the Dulwich Picture Gallery in South London. Given that history, we should be hearing about theft number five shortly. You know, Morton's Salt has been around since 1889. It continues to be the go-to brand for this simple product because of an innovation in 1911 connected to their easy-pour spout. This pod nugget is from the Trivia Genius website for June 24, 2020. In the early 20th century, salt was a recurring problem for cooks and diners. You see, salt, like sugar, absorbs water from the air. In rainy or humid weather, it tended to clump, forcing people to chisel away at the rock-hard chunks of salt to get a few sprinkles. Well, Morton solved this problem in 1911 by adding magnesium carbonate, an anti-caking agent. Morton salt would now pour freely in all kinds of weather. The company added a free pour spout to the package to emphasize their innovation. To proclaim their free flow advantage, they hired an advertising agency from Philadelphia to develop concepts for their first national campaign. The Morton folks didn't like any of the proposed concepts, but they fell in love with the image of a curly-haired little girl under an umbrella holding a container of salt that was freely pouring on the ground. The caption for the drawing of the little girl was, Even in rainy weather, it flows freely. (laughs) After some tweaking, the slogan became, When it rains, it pours. The slogan and the little girl first appeared on the cylindrical package in 1914, and they remain the image of Morton Salt to this day. The little girl's hairstyle and clothing have changed from time to time, but the cylindrical package with the free pour spout remains the same. In 2012, the little girl was named one of the top ten female ad icons of all time. She still looks pretty cute for being over a 100 years old. Yeah, and you know, we've got one of those little cylindrical containers in our kitchen cabinet right now, Paul. Oh, that was a salty comment. (laughs) If you're ever in the middle of a shower and you're hit with a great idea you've experienced the activation of your default mode network. This pod nugget is from the National Geographic for August 12, 2022. Research suggests that you are more likely to have a creative breakthrough when you are engaged in a habitual task and your mind is on autopilot, such as walking your dog or resting or maybe taking a shower. The key to this creative state is a pattern of brain activity that occurs within the default mode network, or DMN, Neural wiring that connects more than a dozen regions of the brain. This network becomes more active when your mind wanders rather than when you're doing something that requires focus. Ideas generated during active DMN were more likely to be associated with overcoming an impasse on a vexing problem. In other words, aha moments. But Rex Jung, a neuropsychologist at the University of New Mexico, suggests other parts of your brain are needed to refine those aha moments. These other brain functions pick the idea to refine, evaluate its worth, and decide on a way to implement it. This refinement is necessary if you want to carry a great idea to implementation. Ah, but it all starts with idea generation from activity in the DMN. Kalen Kristoff, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of British Columbia, has some suggestions stimulating idea generation. 
Upon waking from a full night's sleep or even a nap, note the ideas that pop up as you are struggling to be fully awake. A tablet and pen on your nightstand might help the process. During the day, spend some time doing activities that aren't cognitively demanding, such as gardening or listening to a podcast, maybe? Mm -hmm. Then just let your mind wander. From now on, when I'm dozing off or daydreaming, I'm actually generating ideas. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You know, Paul, the greatest idea I ever had is something that I wrote down as soon as I woke up one morning. The pen is mightier than the banana. <laughs> Bob Dauber must have been a heck of a production guy because he kept getting hired away from good jobs. Starting as a copywriter for Montgomery Ward, he worked in radio and TV production in Chicago and Dallas, where his reputation landed him a place in the warm confines of the Barney TV show. Back in Chicago, Bob reflects on his life, his friends, and his winning formula for life. Bob, I'd like to start by going back to those long-ago days in Minneapolis Yeah. when I first met you, and you were a producer for Montgomery Ward. Correct. And I thought we just really had a ball together. We had. You did. And who could forget Ward's dollar days? Oh, my God. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but... We always look forward to producing those because they were really just more fun than anything. <laughs> they were. And there were wild spots that played both Los Angeles and, and Chicago. Absolutely. So yeah. I would get phone calls from friends that I had arrived, you know. Well. Well, you're all over the TV here in Los Angeles. Yeah, they, they didn't go network or uh, they didn't go to New York because there was no store distribution in metropolitan New York. And that's why. Got it. Well, I tell you where I'd like to go with this is... Um, you have a unique perspective on Montgomery Ward. <laughs> Montgomery Ward and Sears were yes. institutions in this country for 100 years. Right. Um, you, you had a slice of that history. What's your perspective on? After World War II, Sewell Avery was convinced there was going to be a depression. He was the chairman of the Board of Wards. As I understand it, they actually, to extricate him from a boardroom, they had to call in the military. And they, there's a famous picture of him. Uh, it's probably in the Tribune. It's, it's probably anywhere. I think if you just Google it. But it's a picture of him being carried out in a chair by a couple of uh, soldiers. So Wards uh, really fell behind Sears in a big way very quickly. And there was, a, there was an article written in Fortune magazine, as I recall, and said, when the economy gets a cold, Montgomery Ward gets pneumonia. And so essentially that's what happened, you know, with Ward. Sears just um, blew by them. The wish book, as they called it, the catalog, yep. uh, was the paper products in a lot of farm outhouses. I understand it. How'd they get it on a roller? I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that that was an era um, when those those were the two retailers that you uh, you would go well go check wards and see what their price is or go to Sears and see if they're cheaper. Um, well, you know it's really it's really funny for me. Um, my first job was as a copywriter at Wards. I had no idea that Wards had retail stores. All I knew was the catalog, because at that time in Chicago there were no Montgomery Ward stores. But I had no idea that they were that big retail wise all over the country. Wow. So when I applied for a job there, I just figured, you know, it's going to be as a catalog copywriter. And lo and behold, they had retail. So I quickly gravitated to that because 
writing for a catalog is uh, <laughs> a little, <laughs> little limiting, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I really wanted to get in, get into uh, radio and TV advertising at that point, uh, and I made it very well known in my uh, early years at Wards. And I lasted exactly two months and 27 days in the print area at Wards. And I was recruited by a guy who wound up being my mentor and very, very close friend. His name was Rock Anderson. Rock also had uh, aspirations of getting into the broadcast area. And in those days, we're talking back in around 1964, television advertising for retailers was really not even embryonic at that point. But anyway, uh, Rock gravitated from the print area over to promotional planning, and he took me with. And I did that for a while, and then he, uh, he finally inherited the broadcast portion, which, again, was minuscule in, um, in the advertising department there, and he took me with again. Uh, so that's how I was able to really just uh, get my foot in the door as far as doing broadcasts, uh, which consisted of writing every month. I would write about, I don't know, between... 75 and 100 radio commercials, and they were sent out in script form. But in along with that, we were also producing jingles, which we would send out to the stores. And so they would marry the two together when they would produce their spots for local you know, consumption. Let's see, I was with Wards for about three years, and then I was hired by uh, a big Michigan Avenue ad agency, Needham, Harper, and Steers was mm-hmm. the name of it, or as I used to call them, Needles, Hairpins, and Stein, but they didn't like that. And... Um, I was there for about three years and went in as a copywriter, exited as a writer-producer. And Wards, actually, after uh, about the three years of being gone from there, they approached me and asked me if I would consider talking with them about coming back. Turned out Wards was getting very serious about television. And they asked me to come back. And so I did. They got real serious about it. They did media buying. We actually honest, had honest gut air dates and so forth. Yeah, in the middle of all of that, um, you got an opportunity to move to Dallas, didn't you? When Northwest Teleproductions in Minneapolis, who was my primary supplier, decided to expand, they expanded to Dallas. And they said, hey, would you go down there and run this thing? And that's how I wound up down there. For 30, how many years? 33. (laughs) But who's counting? Well, I ran Southwest Teleproductions for nine years. But I did that for nine years, and then I decided to go out on my own as an independent, just freelance producer, director. And I did that for about five years. While, and then I went to work for SpectraVision. SpectraVision was the really one of the pioneers in pay-per-view. They were the hotel movie folks for about three years. And then I was, I was an involuntary participant in a corporate downsizing, which means I got laid off. <laughs> and so I went back to the freelance world, and I established a creative service, if you will, and it was called Bob's Pretty Good Creative. And <laughs> people would say, well, how come only pretty good? I said, well, if I do something special, you know, super, then I've exceeded your expectations. There's a famous name that's connected with your time in Dallas, Bob, and it's familiar to every child of a certain age, and that name is Barney. <laughs> I knew you'd go there. <laughs> yes, of course we would. The Barney folks approached me and said, hey, we need a post-production supervisor, and who knows post-production much better than you do. So that's how that started. So in 1997, I went to work at Barney and Friends as the post-production supervisor and did that for seven years. And then how did you go back to Snow Country? What, what was that all about? Okay. In 2003, 
I married a woman that I went to, to high school with. Actually, she was the most beautiful girl in our high school class, and we might have spoken 10 sentences with each other over the four years. Somehow, uh, you know, good old quirks of fate, we were actually accidentally connected, reconnected with each other via an email from a mutual friend who lives in Denver. The woman that I married from Chicago, her name was Bunny. We got married in 2003, and she was up here, and I was down there, and I abducted her to Dallas. And after seven years, she said, uh, can we go back? And I said, yes, we can. I said, there's nothing really keeping me here. So we moved back here. And then after being back not quite three years, she got lung cancer, oh. passed away. But that's how I wound up back in Chicago because of, you know, Bunny asked if we could move back. And I had no qualms about it. I uh, Well, I did. Yes, I did. I was worried about it. Dallas, I was a big deal. I was very, I was very high profile in the film business. I was very active in things outside of running the studio as well. So yes, there was the fear of coming back up here. Nobody knows me. I'm going to, you know, just kind of fade into the woodwork. And to a certain degree that has happened. But again, at that point, this was what, 2010, when we moved back up here. I did do very well still doing freelance writing for about, oh, four or five years. And at that point, I guess it was about 2015, Pretty much my active work as far as doing anything in the business was, you know, came to a halt. Okay, Bob, now we now we got to deal with your hobby horse. Uh, <laughs> you you have a jazz show. I do. My brother turned me on to jazz when I was about, I guess, maybe fourteen years old. And Jim, you'll relate to this one. Shelly Mann, that was the catalyst for me. There was a, he did a series of albums called Shelly Mann and His Men, Swinging Sounds. And a little over five years ago, actually a guy that uh, I went to college with, and he told me he was doing radio at a little tiny station in uh, Round Lake Heights, Illinois, a suburb of Round Lake. <laughs> and he said, they're always looking for people. So I went and talked to the station president. He said, well, what would you want to do? I said, I'd like to do a jazz show. So I've been doing that for five years now. Not at that station. I'm at a different station now. We're a community station. We stream globally. Our signal goes out about 40 feet uh, terrestrially, but we stream globally. The name of my show is Jazz Lives, exclamation point, and that was in response to that piece of crap movie called La La Land, in which they proclaimed jazz was dead. And so my show is called Jazz Lives. And when we're talking about jazz, Bob, what typically do you play on your station? I tend to lean towards the more classics, uh, Jim. Mm -hmm. I try to do themed shows. It seems that I get more listeners when I do themed shows. And you also do some volunteering, Bob. Tell us about it. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago. I approached a friend of mine whose name is Ron Montaigne, and you might know his older brother, uh, who is the star on uh, Criminal Minds, Joe Montaigne. And Ron is a big macher at a place called the North Shore Senior Center, which is up here in the North Shore of you know, Chicago. It's a beautiful facility, and it's got uh, just all kinds of programs for seniors. And their big deal uh, is a thing called uh, the Tuesday Club. The Tuesday Club does presentations 49 weeks out of the year, and these are world-class presentations. Speakers they range anywhere from doctors to lawyers to consumer advocates to scientists to uh, columnists. Uh, we do get, uh, we get four musical performances a year from Northwestern University from their music school. So that'll take up a program, but we do programs 49 weeks a year. And so they said, Bob, uh, we'd like for you to take this over. So that's how I wound up being the program chair for this. Bob, I have a 
question that probably relates to, oh, most of the people who listen to our program. I'm sort of looking for the encouraging words you might have to everybody out there who is experiencing this sudden shift in their world connection. I've been a member of Al-Anon for 22 years. My son is a recovering alcoholic. And they work the same, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but they work the same steps as AA. And step number three, I can't recite it verbatim, but the essential message of it is we're not in control of anything. However, if your mind is open and you open yourself up to possibilities that are perhaps being controlled by a, quote, higher power, I'm not a God person, but I do believe in a higher power. I do believe in things happening that really weren't in our control, perhaps, but fortunately we have the apps and awareness to capitalize on something when it does happen. So I don't know if that answers your question, Jim, but... Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think- we could we could cut that down to uh, stay busy. <laughs> <laughs> Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention yeah. and stay busy. Got yeah. It. Bob, we got a great interview going here. Thank you so much. I would do it anytime. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.